Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast. Each episode we discuss what leadership challenges aspiring entrepreneurs face as they build and scale their startups. I'm your host, Michael Fröhlich. For the past four years, I've been running the Center for Digital Technology and Management, short CDTM. There, I help to connect, educate and empower university students to drive innovation through technology. My next career step will be founding a startup myself. To be ready for the journey ahead, I want to learn from people that have done it before. I want to deep dive into their experiences. In the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast, you can expect exciting conversations about the tactics and strategies that it takes to succeed as a startup founder and a leader. So welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast, where we explore the journey of starting and growing a successful business. Today we are joined by Maximilian Röhr, the co-founder of Finn Auto, a startup, or maybe already a scale-up, shaking up the automobile market. With Finn, you can lease brand new cars for six to 12 months, more flexible than any leasing. So Maximilian and I know each other from studying at the Center for Digital Technology and Management, short CDTM, and spending a semester abroad at UC Berkeley in the Bay Area. Already then, Maxi couldn't help but get a car for the four months we were there. And well, let's say, It was an adventure, because back then we couldn't get a car subscription. But today, this all has changed. Together with his team, he is currently taking Finn to the US. But before he takes off to New York again, I wanted to get him on the podcast. Welcome, Maxi. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested into entrepreneurship? Absolutely. So I think actually my interest in entrepreneurship started quite early. Um, I grew up very rurally in the Bavarian forest, uh, in, the, in the midst of the wilderness, not, not, <laughs> not as bad as that, um, but actually um, quite far away from kind of like uh, museums or uh, technology. And so for me, discovering the internet when I was very young was eye-opening because yeah. there was this whole world of people out there who had very simple, similar interests than me. Um, I think I had back then very different interests than uh, other children or teenagers in my age group and I was just fascinated by it. So I got sucked into this world where kind of like there seemed to be no uh, borders, no uh, limitations in a way and uh, started very early on kind of like tinkering around with it and I realized that with very little skill you could actually build websites. Yeah. And so I started building websites. It was a ton of fun and uh, went to the local lawyers, to the uh, um, tax attorneys, uh, to uh, the local dentist, to local... So all uh, those people that didn't have a website back then. They didn't have a website at all. And um, they had emails, they had domains, but they didn't use the website at all. And I basically used very, very simple WordPress themes, customized <laughs> them, filled them with content, um, I, I, wanted, I wanted to say that I was like uh, building a website, but ultimately I was copy, copy and pasting uh, yeah. stuff together. But as I was doing so, I was learning a lot. I was making some money um, and that was just a ton of fun to me. And so from very, very early on, I was interested in entrepreneurship and wanted to pursue that. And did you realize it back then that this was entrepreneurship or uh, how did you think about it back then? For me, this seemed somehow like a a fun hobby mm -hmm. and the money wasn't even the thing for me it was just fun to build stuff and to solve problems for people 
And I realized that I could help them, that I had skills that were very complementary to theirs, and I could basically enhance their business and uh, get them additional customers. So um, the, the, the first website that I built was actually for a lawyer, um, who is still my lawyer, um, <laughs> and she uh, was afterwards super, super happy because she said, like, yeah, one customer found me online on the, on the internet, and she was super, super excited by that. And for me, as a kind of like 14-year-old boy, that was uh, really, really cool. Yeah. And so ultimately, I think it wasn't about the money, it was rather about like helping people and kind of like doing something that's fun, building something that didn't exist before. And that was very, very exciting to me. And as I kind of like moved towards studying, I also thought about like, should I study informatics and so on? I ultimately didn't because I hated debugging. I, was, <laughs> I did not know properly how to program. And so... Um, debugging was always hell for me I think it is for everybody but it was particularly bad for me and so I didn't um, end up studying um, informatics but I actually thought that studying economics going closer to finance that would bring me the closest towards entrepreneurship uh, it turned out that uh, that's not the right route but I <laughs> kind of like found my way back because I rediscovered this joy of building stuff of kind of like solving problems of um, yeah uh, creating something that was not there um, a week ago or a month ago or a year ago. Yeah, interesting. Also, I think this notion of uh, yeah, building something and then really seeing the real world impact, like the example of the lawyer gave. So how did this bring you from these early steps to co-founding Finn, a company that uh, sells car subscriptions? Yeah, so um, I mentioned that uh, I thought like for a time that finance, private equity would be kind of like where I could use my talents best. And um, I, I did a, a private equity internship and discovered maybe that's not the right route for me. Um, it, it, it was very mental, it was kind of like intellectually challenging, mm -hmm. but it didn't feel like the, the right step for me. And so I went to actually CDTM and discovered really that there are a plethora of startups out there that are building stuff. I joined a couple of startups early stage and this kind of like building together with other people. So basically working very, very hard on something that does not exist yet, kind of like seeing every day how um, you do something new, the impact that you are generating, that was really re rewarding for me. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately realized that I want to do this one day myself um, but I also wanted to make sure that I do it for the, for the, with the right uh, information, with the right um, background, with the right uh, tools at my hand. So I joined a couple of different startups and um, always knowing maybe I want to do this one day myself but kind of not knowing when. And I was working for a, a venture capital firm, uh, Picos Capital, at the time and um, one of the partners said, hey, look into the automotive market. That sounds really, really interesting. And at first I was like, hmm, automotive, um, it's a very traditional industry. It's not really my field of expertise. I um, don't have a very strong affinity to cars. But I actually, as you know, <laughs> because you were there, I bought a car seven years ago, um, six years ago when we were at Berkeley. And uh, that was the shittiest buying experience of my lifetime. Yeah, I can remember you also then spent some time debugging that car. <laughs> yeah, uh, debugging is a very <laughs> nice way of phrasing. Yeah, so basically I bought... But probably about the same fun as debugging some code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I bought a car and it was 
uh, from beginning to end a really bad customer experience and ultimately working then uh, or like basically looking into the automotive space I um, got confronted with that buying experience again and I thought like why isn't there an easier way to basically get a car why mm -hmm. isn't this more digital why isn't this easier why hasn't somebody built something for that and that for me was a very big source of inspiration and kind of like um, I then started working towards it and ultimately realized hey this might be the thing that I want to start myself and where I want to do the step and actually uh, plunge myself into entrepreneurship. Take the plunge. So you uh, jumped in. Uh, when was this? 2019? How old is Finn right now? Uh, Finn is uh, three and a half years old. So in, in five, six months, we're going to have our fourth birthday. Oh, Congress. It, yeah. Thank you. But it feels like eternity, to be honest. Like it feels way longer than that. Um, but at the same time, it also feels like yesterday when we sat, uh, kind of like just two people, three people in a room and uh, started uh, playing around with the idea and uh, started, started building it. Yeah. yeah, Crazy. So how has the company evolved since then? How many uh, people are you today? Uh, how many offices do you have? To, maybe to give our audience a bit of a background about Finn. Yeah, so um, we are 400 employees. Uh, at the moment, 400 team members. We have two offices, one in Munich, one in New York, um, but there are also some remote employees, roughly 20% of the company is remote. We really like this hybrid combination. I think there's a very strong benefit of, of the offices and the in-office culture, but also um, great to find talent that is not in Munich or uh, New York. And yeah. Yeah, cool. So. You just mentioned New York and uh, from talking to you, you just spent three months there uh, trying to get Finn's US business up and running. Yeah. It's running already. Uh, <laughs> I guess you uh, try to make it run faster now. So uh, I just want to dive deep a bit into this experience because Finn, not even four years old, already going to the US from Germany. So that's quite uh, a thing, I would say. So can you tell me a bit, little bit about uh, what... Uh, inspired you as a company to take this uh, step? Yeah. Um, so ultimately, when we launched in Germany roughly three years ago, we saw um, uh, initially a very challenging start. It was right before the COVID pandemic, um, but it was very, very interesting because um, there was this extremely steep growth curve. We um, saw a rapid adoption, everybody that we talked to that was actually looking for a car. Um, the concept of getting a car subscription and looking on our website, finding the perfect vehicle for them, ordering in less than five minutes and then being simply, simply able to start driving because we took care of all the hassle, of all the inconvenience of, of um, owning a car, that resonated very, very strongly with people. Mm -hmm. And we saw this very steep growth curve um, growing from uh, zero to uh, 4 million in revenues basically in the first one and a half years. And we wanted to replicate that because after year one, after year one and a half, we saw that growth curve still continuing, but slightly less steep. And so slightly, slightly declining, getting more 
getting, not not get, cause saturation, getting, but yeah. getting more mature simply. Yeah. Like you you cannot sustain 10x growth. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you have just a few employees, uh, it's easy to uh, sorry a few customers. Uh, yeah. If you have 10 customers, it's easy to grow 10x to 100. But as this goes on, you know, it becomes harder and harder. Yeah. And so we looked into other markets and kind of like where could we. And grow as quickly as possible, and where can we kind of like um, apply that model that is working really, really well in Germany? And so we looked at different European markets, um, but we also looked across the Atlantic into the US, and we were actually blown away on the one hand side at how well the model fits onto the market, but mm -hmm. also regarding the lack of competition that was there. Yeah. And so our ambition was really to be the first mover in the U.S. and to be kind of like one of the very, very few German companies that are, or European companies, that are actually going to the U.S. and that actually can go to the U.S. because there isn't like a Decacorn uh, looking at you from the other side of the Atlantic and basically looking down at you and saying, oh, you're cute, you're doing the same thing in Europe, yeah. but actually bringing that model to the U.S. and bringing that innovation to the U.S. customer. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, so, when did you sell your first car subscription in the US? In uh, nearly one year ago, uh, 28th of uh, February. Okay, um, so almost one year US expansion. Uh, I mean, you spent now uh, the last three months uh, in New York building the US business yourself. What were the challenges you encountered in actually taking Finn to the US, uh, challenges that surround an internet internationalization like this? So there are many challenges, right? I think the biggest one, and that's really, really hard to accept as a founder, is that ultimately the company you will build in the US is going to be different from the company that we built in Germany. And so the culture is going to be different. Um, the values should be the same, but ultimately how you live these values is going to be different. Mm -hmm. The product is going to be different. The positioning is going to be different. And to decide on where do you need to adjust the model that is working so well in Germany and where you can keep the same um, pieces for efficiency's sake, yeah. that is really, really hard. And that's not an easy trade-off that you can actually do in terms of where does it make sense to localize and where can you actually do a global approach. So when you went there, did you go there with the assumption, okay, we're not taking this business model we have in Germany that works and we're taking it to the US and then took this as a starting point to iterate or did you have some assumptions where you had to change it before going there already? So there were some points where we knew already how that's going to change. There were some learnings that we also made in Germany that we did not want to replicate in the start in the US. And so there, we, we started already with a slightly different model. Um, but try to really keep as um, global a model as possible because we also maybe in the future want to go to other markets yeah. um, throughout Europe where we want to keep the model as similar as possible and um, centralize also as much of the platform, as much of the technology as possible. But as we iterated and as we built the team in the US, as we gained more customers, we realize that there are probably more things than we thought that we need to adapt and that we need mm -hmm. to change. And so that was a really interesting learning experience because as you can imagine, I think when you're a 10 person startup, that change happens very, very easily. However, when you're a 400 
uh, person scale up, then it gets a little bit harder to make these adjustments and to make sure that you are still nimble in navigating these challenges in a new market. Plus, I guess the decision makers also information asymmetry uh, increases as you have two different offices, two different markets, but then the founding uh, executive team is also distributed across them and has to take these decisions without really knowing what's going on on the other side. Absolutely, and that, that was probably one of our biggest mistakes in terms of like not immediately um, sending a founder ultimately over. Mm -hmm. um, so we first um, hired a team in the US and um, none of us five founders actually uh, we traveled frequently we spent a lot of time in the US but no one moved there yeah and I think that is also simply in terms of commitment in terms of building culture that's a really really important point to make sure that you are building um, on the one hand side trust but also that you're building the same thing as in Germany The same thing with a different, same values, same company, but yeah, different, different culture, as you the say. The same core, I would say. Yeah. Like the same core values, the same core business principles, the same core decision making. And as a founder team, you build a certain level of trust with each other. Yeah. And if you hire somebody externally, it's, it's, it's harder to uh, make sure that this person actually can make the hard decisions and that they are required to take. And they might feel pressured into following the blueprint from Germany, kind of like forcing yeah. something onto the market that might not be the best fit. And that might not even work perfectly in Germany, right? So, I mean, as you build your business, you scale it, things change. And then it's still, you take what you have in Germany, transfer it. But even that is a work in progress. I 100%. And in Germany, we are now at a point with uh, more than 110 million in, in annual recurring revenues where it's a very different machine than what you need in a market where you have 10 million yeah. uh, revenue and it's, a, it's still a way smaller business. You don't need the same level of processes. You don't need the same level of automation. You don't need the same level of um, stability um, that we have in Germany. Very interesting. So I want to get back to the culture point in a second uh, a bit, but before we do that, do you think there are any misconceptions about going international, going to the US that hold back, let's say, European or German uh, startups from doing so. The decision within from the outside, it looks like a very bold decision that seems to work out also quite, quite nicely. Um, but if, at the same time, there's obviously some risk attached to that. So given your experience, how do you think about this today? I think many people are afraid in terms of redoing decisions. So ultimately, as you learn more and as you gain more and more information, mm -hmm. you need to revisit decisions frequently. And so ultimately, when you make a decision, uh, not only regarding expansion, but also regarding a new business line, regarding building up a certain channel, reversing that decision is often easier than you might think. Mm -hmm. You lose a little bit of face, but ultimately you need to build a culture and an organization where it's okay to fail, to make mistakes. But the important thing is to correct these mistakes and these failures as soon as possible. So ultimately a decision is not as costly as you might think 
if you revisit it frequently and adjust accordingly. So for example, if you say invest into an expansion and you realize along the way, hey, maybe this expansion is not going as planned, you can adjust budgets, you can adjust timelines, you can uh, adjust also maybe even uh, going back from that market. Mm -hmm. And while that might look like you're losing face, I think in two or three years, very few people will actually remember. Um, I think, for example, in uh, N26, it was for one year everybody talked about them going to the US, then yeah. for one year everybody talked about, about them going out of the US, but now nobody is talking about that anymore. And so I think it was a very bold decision from, from them to go to the US. I think there were some very fundamental and, and valid reasons why it did not work out as planned or as, as expected. And then they redid this decision, and that's actually something that I admire a lot. Um, ultimately, the cost of taking a decision is way lower than of not taking that decision. So rather decide very, very often and frequently and adjust these decisions as you learn more information. And that holds true for nearly everything. So it resonates with you because basically these are, now with more my computer science background, agile principles, right? So instead of laying out a big plan for years to come, you rather look at the information you have and try to take the next possible steps, maybe also anticipating a bit into the future, but then really manage the risk through frequently revisiting the problem at hand with the new information you have. The question though is, um, are the decisions where you shouldn't do that? Or maybe with taking Finn uh, to the US uh, yeah. example, it, uh, it's probably a decision because it's very visible yeah. that's very hard to take back. And as you said, with N26, um, as an example, it is then often seen as a rather large failure to take this big, bold bet and have it not work out. So I'd, I'd rather take the bet and have it not work out than not having taken the bet at all. I, of course, you need to... So it's a risk, right? Yeah. And you need to mitigate risks as much as possible and need to take them in a very deliberate fashion. And I think we are doing that. So I think we have a very clear uh, plan on how we want to build up the, the US. So it's working very, very well. Um, and as long as you are taking a risk deliberately and are doing everything that is possible um, towards making it work, I think taking this bet is actually most of the time a positive thing. And mm -hmm. I think that's actually something that is missing in German culture quite a lot. This acceptance of failure is often cited as one of the key differences between the US and Germany in terms of startup ecosystem. That yeah. If you start a startup in the US and it did not work out, it's a great dinner conversation. Um, and if you do the same thing in Germany, it's you kind of frowned upon, you looked upon, and people are uh, making assumptions that it was your fault that you failed. And it might be something completely different. It might be timing, and it might, it might be bad luck. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, if you look at successful startup founders, it's not uh, seldom that you find that they actually found it before and it didn't work out and wasn't yeah. a big success. But there are so many externalities that you can't control, right? Yeah. So. You mentioned culture before, uh, and also now again, decision-making, having clear uh, ways and uh, processes, cultures, uh, sorry, values that form your decision-making culture also. 
it seems to be a very central point to also building a company that it can scale from one office to the US, but also just in terms of sheer size. So how can you transfer, maybe not the culture so much, but really the values that underlie those uh, from one office, from one continent to another? That's a really hard question. And ultimately, you need to make sure that the values are as present as possible and are tightly integrated into meetings, processes, artifacts, however you want to call it. Simply, people need to be regularly reminded of what kind of behavior is expected from them. And ultimately, everybody in, at Finn as a leader needs to live those values. So everybody needs to constantly remind others of this is how we expect people to behave. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, uh, that's also part of my job to simply make sure that I'm a cultural role model and live these values for others. And so I think that's actually something that is working really, really well in the US where we have been able to transfer these core values uh, quite effectively. We have built a different culture than in Germany but one that is working well and where the team is working really, really tightly together and, and, and able to scale the business quite effectively. Yes, yeah, so I think the difference between values and culture, right, is that values underlie all of that and then culture is how the values are expressed through action, in a sense. And this also should be similar in different uh, places with uh, different, different people because Well, the culture in the US is a different, different one than in Germany and 100%. you don't want to have a carbon copy of that uh, in the US. It wouldn't work. The same way the business model wouldn't work. Yeah. So my impression of Finn is that you've managed to build a culture that supports high performance and growth. Can you maybe walk me through one or two examples how you did that and how this also is reflected in your, uh, let's say, daily behavior or management practices? Yeah. So... I think one thing that is very important for performance is accountability. And so what we want to do is to be as transparent and as explicit as possible, both with the expectations that we have towards people, mm -hmm. but also with results, right? Uh, so for example, I cited kind of like uh, mistakes and failures before, if we are not hitting the goal, we need to talk very openly about it and we need to make sure that people are aware that, for example, I have not reached one of my uh, objectives and key results this quarter. Yeah. And then once you are very, very open about that and make sure that people um, know about it, also know about that you are working on it, I think that's a great start to actually creating accountability and ultimately creating performance. And in that creation of accountability and performance, I think one of the most important mechanisms is constant and very specific actionable feedback. And that feedback mm -hmm. is best if you start writing stuff down. If, if somebody does something that you don't like, that you don't approve of, or that simply was bad performance, you start writing it down and you make it as actionable and as specific as possible for them so that people can constantly learn and improve. And I think that feedback and is one of the most important tools that also has pushed me forwards over the past couple of years and had enabled me to learn a lot by constantly asking for feedback, by constantly giving feedback, but 
yeah, and also making it as ex explicit and as specific as possible. Yeah, I, I can imagine also something I observe is that the best people, they constantly pull for feedback and want to actually get the points where they have been not living up to expectations. So how do you translate this then in, into a process, right? So writing things down <laughs> is one thing, yeah. and then also having performance reviews, or you mentioned a quarterly OKR course is also yeah. uh, probably one process you have established, but yeah. right, three months is a long time. So uh, when do you give feedback? Is it you see something, you immediately approach the employer, yeah. or have it, have, do you have processes set up so there are regular one-on-ones? So I think there are like three or four layers to this. So first of all, whenever you observe something, um, say something, um, maybe not in a broader round, but then get this person um, out of the conversation, uh, talk to them afterwards, or write them a sort of short message, make sure that there is enough context, that there is enough, and um, that it's balanced, that it's not uh, too much in the, of, of, in the heat of the moment. Yeah. And, and that your emotions are also removed from it. I think that's always important. Yeah, and that, but then it's simply constant feedback is the best form of feedback. And feedback in the moment is the best form of feedback. And it's also a great way to do this in one document so that basically if you come to these uh, quarterly um, reviews or uh, by, uh, by annual uh, performance reviews we are doing that you have a bunch of examples that you can actually pull from because examples are what makes feedback good because then the person understands kind of like, oh, this yeah. was the situation where I showed this behavior and that was that is what it, what is expected of me. Um, I think the second aspect is point out when people are giving you feedback that yeah. you appreciate it and that you encourage that. Yeah. And I think that is heavily underrated that also positive feedback on, for example, giving negative feedback is I think one of the strongest tools. So uh, two weeks ago, somebody uh, challenged me in a broader round mm -hmm. in front of, I think, like eight or nine people. And I really, really liked that and actually wrote a Slack message, I think like one hour later, telling this person, hey, great job. You had an extremely valid argument. Thank you for challenging me. I hope you're happy with the result of our discussion and uh, please keep doing so. Yeah. And uh, that was, yeah, that I think is really, really important as well for, for making sure that it's not about kind of like feedback is not top down, but feedback is also on a peer level, feedback is also um, from the bottom to the top. Um, so simply making sure that people can be open and transparent about what they're thinking um, and tell you when you might be wrong. Um, and I mean, it's a two-way street, right? So yeah. you, you mentioned earlier, it's about also being a cultural role model. And if you don't take the feedback seriously, uh, then how should everybody else do that, right? So I think there's a certain reciprocality to that. The, the, we still have two layers left. So the third um, aspect for me is delivery. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we are setting ourselves quarterly objectives and key results, where we want to create clear focus and alignment and also commit to certain goals that we want to fulfill in the business. And that is also something where you create accountability, you write things down, you need to make sure that they are always up to date, that they are very clear, that they are very focused, yeah. and that you also talk through them at the end of the quarter and look at why did we hit this goal, why didn't we hit this goal, and what can we learn from that, what can we do better next quarter, 
what can we do better in goal setting as well so not only in terms of yeah. um, performance but also in terms of goal setting and that is slightly decoupled again from the performance review because delivery is not entirely in your in your control so, so markets change you might have been exactly. very diligent doing all the right things and yet still it's just out of reach because the situation has changed Exactly. And then ideally you would change the goals. So as soon as you realize, okay, yeah. this is not achievable or something has changed, you need to revisit the goals and you need to align um, with the broader team. Hey, we cannot reach this goal. Let's change it. I think that's one of the things that is um, often underused that if there is, for example, a shift in focus or an exogenous event that is making it impossible to reach a goal, that you actually revisit these goals during the quarter and make sure that they are always a guiding north star in terms of should I work on this or should I work on yeah. that? But I mean, right, that's process. exactly processes should support the business and not the business, the processes. I mean, in the end, you have these quarterly uh, or biannual planning meetings, etc., to create alignment. But as you said, if there's something that clearly wasn't included in the plan, yeah. don't wait for it until the end of the, the quarter to, to revisit it. But figure out what you need to change. And then, then in the end, there's performance reviews. So performance reviews are a very structured form of feedback that try to holistically capture an employee's performance over the past half year, past six months. Mm -hmm. And what we do there is we don't only look at delivery. Delivery is one important dimension, but we also look at how is this person collaborating with others? How are they handling complexity? How are they mastering the skills that are expected from them. How are they teaching others, for example? Mm -hmm. But also, how are they fulfilling values? And then this performance review is closely related to salary increases and promotions, but it's decoupled from that goal-setting process to make sure that people set themselves ambitious goals. I have people in my team that and it doesn't matter if you fail right you have a very ambitious goal you read 80 percent of that might still be better than setting a lower goal and hitting it exactly and so i'd rather have, have somebody setting ambitious goals and hitting like 60 70 80 percent rather than somebody who's reaching 105 percent on every goal all the time because then something is off of course if somebody is reaching 20 percent all the time on every goal, that there's also something off because then the expectation setting is not working. Yeah. If you tell me this is what we try to achieve this quarter and we are achieving nothing of it, then it's... it's, it's Other it's people cannot plan with that. That's the exactly. issue. Yeah. Exactly. And so you need to have a, um, a good mixture of all of these kind of like different kinds of feedback in an organization to make sure that people can grow and develop and then you also sit together with them and think about how can they learn from this feedback? Like what actions can they take away? Yeah. And how can they work on resolving the, the, the strengthening strengths or also resolving issues that they might have? Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Uh, especially um, in this podcast also, it's always interesting we talk about how you translate the ideas, the values that are sometimes very intangible then really in the processes and the operational aspects that bring them to life yeah. in a sense. Yeah. So, and ultimately, so one thing that is very, very important, this is not right at every stage. 
So we started with the first aspect, right? We started with giving each other constant feedback, yes. maybe even a little bit too much, like being a, maybe even a little bit too direct. But um, as you grow as an organization, you need to become more and more formalized. So you give direct feedback, then you encourage direct feedback because maybe not everybody is as direct as you. And then you start a goal setting and you start creating alignment across the organization. And then only like once you are maybe like 30, 40 people, you should uh, start also with very structured performance reviews because then feedback is getting harder and harder and becomes uh, yeah, simply something that you must do very, very well and very, very structured in the process. I mean, this also coincides with the size of the organization, probably with 30 100%. people. You, I imagine there yeah, are some 10, 15 people you regularly work with, but yeah. then a lot of in, in the different parts of the company you don't. And as you mentioned, if you talk about promotions, pay raises, etc., you want to have a fair process for everyone involved. Exactly, exactly. Um, and therefore you need to process, I guess. Yeah. So a lot about culture and now what Finn values. I would be interested, you, I would say, are also a rather young manager or leader in a company. Uh, doing a great job. So I think that age in this sense uh, doesn't matter so much if you really have the reflection and also the ambition to really learn from these experiences and uh, yeah, learn also the managerial skills you need for that. So I would be interested, given your experience at Finn, have you worked out any principles you try to follow in your management style? That's a great question. And I think what you said really resonated with me in terms of simply you need to be very, very open and you need to be aware that you are probably, you are definitely doing things wrong. Yeah. So nobody is perfect and there are always things that you can improve and, and you, you will never be perfect as a leader. And as you said, you need to develop a certain style that is resonating with you, that is re resonating with your values um, and that is also working, that is simply delivering results. Mm -hmm. And I think the, 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 th the three, four things that resonate with me, the first aspect is trust. So rather giving people too much responsibility, seeing how they handle uh, problems, how they handle situations, and then um, giving them chance to grow themselves instead of you holding back all the challenges, all the huge problems, all the complexity for yourself and basically micromanaging people. Mm -hmm. Put these away. Some things you cannot give away, unfortunately, but most of the things, like for 95% of my work, it probably doesn't matter whether I do it or somebody of my direct reports does it. And I might have a little bit more context. I might have in some areas um, better skills as an individual contributor. In some areas, they are better as an individual contributor. And so um, delegating is one of the most important things that you need to learn, specifically as a young leader. I think it's always, it's a little bit of a stereotype, but many young leaders are kind of like keeping everything to themselves because they want to be perfect. They want to do a great job. They think... Um, I think they can do it better and probably they're also for a single specific task most of the time right I would say but it's not sustainable right so they 100% and not, not only that like even if they can do it better they cannot do it all yeah. and so some also want to protect their team and 
that's mostly the, the, the entirely wrong motivation. So delegate as much as possible, give trust to the team, and then only if something is not working, you need to step closer, and that is something that you need to do quickly. So yeah. as you identify, hey, this is apparently the line on which the complexity of problems, for example, that I can delegate to this person, and they currently have a too large problem, then you should step closer very, very quick, quickly, help that person in, in solving that challenge, and adjust the complexity, the scope of problems that you give that person going forward. Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. I think the second aspect is disagree, disagree, commit. Um, <laughs> I actually have one of my co-founders, Andy, who, our CTO, who is doing this very excessively. He has very strong opinions, uh, but loosely held. And so we have, a, I think, a very active discussion culture at Finn, which I love and that can be really, really intense. But it's also great because ultimately all in a team, in a discussion, when you go out of the room, everybody is committed to the result of the discussion. And that's very, very important because otherwise the discussion culture can get really, really toxic because everybody is trying to undermine each other. Um, everybody's saying, hey, now he won, but I don't believe it. And you need to challenge each other. You need to try to get to the best possible result. But once you got to that result, once the decision is made, you need to back that decision by 100%. And so also um, as a leader in a team, you might not always get to the result in a discussion that you personally think is best. So sometimes um, my team is saying, hey, we, will, we should do it like that. And I say in the discussion, okay, you guys all agree. I disagree, but that is okay. Let's commit to that route. Let's track it closely. Let's see whether that hypothesis is true. And um, as we go along, I'm, I'm learning from that. I think... And I think it's very nice how this ties into where we started out uh, today in our conversation. This only works with a failure culture and where you are ready to reverse decisions, right? Yeah. Because then it's easy also to disagree and then commit, try it out and then let the data speak for itself. Uh, I think it's also interesting in this transition maybe from an individual contributor or a founder who does parts themselves to more this managerial position you, I think, need to balance in the end the trade-off between being right, maybe having the best experience, information, etc., and knowing that this might be the best solution yeah. out of many ways forward, and then also creating the buy-in within the team and having everyone on board. Yeah. Because maybe a 10% better solution that you know, but you would need to push on the person who is responsible for implementing it, might not fare so well against the reduction in buy-in that the person feels the reduction ownership in driving this themselves. So maybe in, it becomes less your job to be right and more to bring out the best ideas in the team. Yeah, and absolutely. And it's also perfectly fine that the team is making decisions themselves. So you need to trust them in terms of developing their own judgment. And even if you disagree, you simply trust them and let them go along and let them build their own judgment. Yeah. How I built a lot of my fundamental beliefs that I have around the world, that I have around business, that I have around e-commerce and so on, most of them came through mistakes that I made <laughs> yeah. by believing that uh, something that I am smarter than the rest. And yeah. 
you mostly aren't smarter than the rest and then by failing and by learning and by trying out a bunch of different things you actually develop uh, judgment and you need to make sure that the people in your team are able to develop a strong judgment as well Be otherwise they will always need you yes and i think the, the 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 biggest portion of being a good leader is actually making yourself useless like making yourself a stronger and stronger coach that is simply jumping in when people are uh, failing or when people are need help mm -hmm. and that is a huge challenge yeah so we have trust we have disagree and commit last uh, leadership principle i would say is, is radical candor i think that great also book, that also intertwines very very closely with the feedback portion that we discussed earlier mm -hmm. so be direct be transparent give people feedback but don't be an asshole while you give that feedback and I think the thing that, that I also really really stretch about Radical Canada that is not as much mentioned in the book is to be extremely specific to be very very explicit because people get stuff wrong like if you tell them hey I'm not happy with this not everybody might hear what you want to say to them. So one thing that I've learned in terms of giving feedback is also simply writing that down very, very explicitly. It might feel brutal uh, in the first draft, then you may, might maybe slightly revisit that draft, uh, make it uh, still direct, but more with more candor. And then uh, you give people a chance to learn. And the observation that I've made is that great performers, great team members, great colleagues of mine, they always responded extremely well to that feedback. Um, specifically when it was given directly and in a very explicit uh, fashion, um, in an actionable way. Uh, that is really, really important. Yeah, I think so. The communication is just hard, especially also. <laughs> no, uh, you can talk about the same thing and still the person hears something completely different what you meant to say. Yeah. So I find when giving feedback, written or otherwise, I think a very good sign uh, of uh, high performers or people that develop very fast is if they ask questions back and they really yeah. try to understand what you are trying to say then because in the end it's probably not as clear as you think even when writing it down and so forth. One of the biggest red flags and something that I did earlier in my career, I, something that I was actually famous for at CDTM, is arguing about feedback, yeah. um, which is not helpful at all. Like, no. um, it's, some, it's a person's opinion. Uh, if this person is your supervisor, it's more important <laughs> of an opinion as if this person is some random person on the street. And you should not argue about the feedback. You can give context to the feedback, but never discuss or, or argue yeah. about feedback. That is just a, it's a waste. Helpful. It's a waste of time. And yeah. it, it rather creates, it disvalues the person that took the time to give you that feedback and erodes the feedback culture we want to have, I think. Yeah. And that's something that I had to learn the, the hard way that actually like once I started asking clarifying questions, once I actually really took feedback ex extremely seriously, um, and made it uh, uh, kind of like a, a pet peeve or a passion of mine to internalize that feedback. And also, for example, when I get uh, feedback from the team, um, then I write it down on post-its and I try to 
physically reflected in the world. I tried to remind myself constantly of, oh, of like what that. this person said. Um, and that actually improves the, my weaknesses significantly. And that is really, really cool. So simply having these very strong reminders in your workspace, on your laptop, or on, your, on your display that are telling you on what you might not be doing so well right now. I'm such a big fan of that idea and also just having and creating the space around you that reminds you about the things you want to grow, you want to work on, it's just great. Also thinking about the great wallpaper for an iPhone right now, disagree, disagree, commit. Yeah, so uh, one, one thing I wanna, wanted to ask you about Radical Candor, right? It has these two dimensions. The first yeah. is challenge directly. I think yeah. we talked a lot about this and it's yeah. also maybe the dimension that strikes me or it feels quite intuitive when you hear about the concept. But the other one, uh, I think show that you care, uh, it's called. That's one where I, I think for a long time struggled with, but I recognize that it's equally important that people know When you give them the feedback, you do it in their best interest. So I wonder, what are your strategies to actually do that and manifest that in how you provide it? It's a lot easier for me when I do it in person. So when I do it in person, I can a lot better also judge kind of like how I'm coming across towards that person. As soon as you are doing it either in a video call or in a written form, it's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, I think in a working relationship, you also need to establish ground rules. So you need to establish in that relationship that you are trying to help each other, that you are trying to improve the performance of each other, that you're trying to push each other forward. Mm -hmm. And once you have established that, it's a lot easier. But what I have found is that talking about the results so basically, what will this enable you to do is catching people. So basically... So the forward-looking perspective. Exactly. I, I try to paint the picture of kind of like what, if you would do this differently, what will this allow you to achieve? Mm -hmm. So making sure that the person understands that I'm not saying this to make my own life easier or to make my own life more comfortable, but actually to improve their outlook to improve their work, to, to help improve, them improve, to help yeah. them. Yeah. And that, that is, that is working very, very well. But I probably, it's also one of, in terms of these three leadership values, it's also the area where I uh, can develop most, um, where I, sometimes I'm, I'm very, very direct and uh, can like write short Slack messages that uh, are very, very pointed specifically to my peers. So yeah. I think to my direct reports, it's, it's, or yeah. to people who don't work with me every day, I have a little bit more sensibility that uh, I need to um, give context. I need to make sure that um, the intention that I have with this feedback is clear. But uh, sometimes with uh, specifically the, the other co-founders, I can be very, very rough because I know, for example, when something has not been going well, that they can do it better. And they also have the responsibility for the entire company. I think that's also... And you have this peer eye-on-eye level. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, you and still And nonetheless, you should actually exactly. show that it's... it's yeah. Exactly. Because otherwise, it will strain the relationship. Yeah. So, of course, they are very patient with me, and I'm really, really thankful for that. But um, it's something that, that I have been working on over the past yeah. three years, basically, to get better and better there. I understand that. Uh, always, always challenging. 
luckily, normally with your co-founders, you have a relationship that's uh, is hopefully stable to get through some of these messages. And it's also interesting because ultimately it's closely related to intensity. Like the intenser a situation is, and the more intense a situation is, the more you become unaware for these, or at least I become unaware for these emotional considerations and for um, making people feel like you're giving the feedback in an, in a, in an interest for the, for the greater good. If the and fire is burning, you feel like, okay, I need to get this extinguished now and it's all about results rather than so much about the feelings of the person behind it, you think. And that is a very interesting challenge because you want to keep up the intensity. So you yeah. need to make sure that if there is a fire burning, that everybody is aware of it, that everybody is present, that everybody um, understands the sense of urgency. But at the same time, in these situations, it's, it's most important that you don't get rift up on communication. Yeah. That it's even more important in these intense situations that you are aware of what you're saying, what you're communicating, and that you're communicating with candor. And that is a very interesting observation. Yeah. So I wonder, before we close this episode, you have now quite some experience, I would say, building a startup, scaling it, and went through a lot of interesting phases. So for aspiring entrepreneurs and founders who are about to start out, What uh, advice would you have uh, to give to them that maybe also for you had to figure out over the last years uh, that would have helped you starting out and maybe avoiding some of the learning by doing mistakes? <laughs> I think maybe the, the advice that I would have is to emphasize this feedback portion that we just yeah. talked about earlier. So... I think learning by doing is completely fine. I think there are some shortcuts that you can take. And so ask people for feedback constantly. Try to improve, try to be open and try to also understand where they might be wrong. So don't listen to all of the feedback that you get. But simply by having more information at hand, by getting different perspectives, you will be a more effective human being. And that is, I think, also more reflected. Yeah. human being so you will also learn more about yourself and that is very very important yeah I'll take it to heart uh, <laughs> <laughs> no I'll take it to heart and I think it's also a very good uh, tip to, to get going uh, before we close this uh, episode I have a final question for you I mean yeah. we've been talking about a lot of different uh, things now uh, if our listeners today should take away one thing and remember one thing from our conversation, what would it be? Okay, so I'm going to actually tell them a new thing that we didn't talk about yet. Okay, so forget <laughs> the last 45 minutes. <laughs> Now it's all about uh, the thing at the end. We end on a highlight. No, but actually to, to, to start building stuff. So I think a lot of people are always waiting for the perfect moment, for the perfect um, situation, for the perfect project, for the perfect idea. And ultimately, I think nothing is ever going to be perfect. And you simply need to start shipping in, 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 in software. You simply need to start building stuff. Yeah. And no matter whether it's whether you start by building a side project, whether you start by doing finally the internship at the startup, 
um, where you were afraid to do it or by I don't know uh, planting a tree or I don't I don't know what you think is but yeah. start doing and start building stuff because that's the only way how you can get better at it that's the only way how you can learn and how you can uh, improve uh, going forward okay so let's start building Thank you for being here, Maxi, and for this uh, fun and interesting conversation. When people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? On LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. Perfect. Maxi, thank you so much. And yeah, all the best for scaling Finn in New York. Thank you so much, Michi. Thank you for the great conversation. I really appreciate the questions and looking forward to talking soon.